Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, April 23rd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. This episode uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report uh, with dispatches on the ongoing crisis, security crisis in the Republic of Sudan as foreign governments evacuate their diplomatic personnel from the country. The International Monetary Fund has predicted a decline in growth on the African continent. We'll have details on that as well. There have been more bodies found in the area of Kenya where a cult is being investigated. And the Russian Federation announced that two other areas of Art Yomask West uh, have been captured uh, from pro-NATO forces in Ukraine. In the second hour, we provide details on recent events in the Republic of Sudan. Finally, in the third hour, we listen to another briefing from the African National Congress National Executive Committee meeting, uh, which is taking place this weekend, discussing the important issues inside the Republic of South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Tanzania uh, with the Sharati Jazz Ek Wo Kiri Kuo uh, hits uh, from uh, the early 1970s. Let's listen in. Yo 
Jazz, Equo Kiriri Quo, um, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story, of course, deals with the ongoing security crisis uh, in the Republic of Sudan, and according to the Sudan Tribune, uh, Mohammed Hamdan Daglo, also known as Hameti, the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, along with his brother, who is the deputy commander, Rahim, separately appeared in the Sudanese capital yesterday to demonstrate their presence among their fighters. In an interview with Al Arabiya TV, Abdel Fatah Al-Bahan, the commander-in-chief of the Sudan Armed Forces, stated that nobody knows where Hermeti is, and even his forces are unaware of his location. Al-Bahan further revealed that he was at the Sudanese Armed Forces General Command in Khartoum, overseeing military operations against the rebellious ISF leader. The Sudanese army took control of the ISF premises in the capital in order to disturb their command and prevent them from coordinating their military operations. After Al-Bahan's statements, Abel Rahim Daglo appeared in an area identified in the eastern Nile town, challenging Al-Bahan to leave his command room in the basement of the army command and fight with his soldiers on the streets. The ISF's second commander appeared in a military uniform and was holding a weapon. On the same day, uh, Saudi-funded Al-Arabiya released another interview with Hameti, reaffirming that he was in Khartoum uh, with his troops visiting the wounded and killed soldiers before adding what that, quote, what Abraham said is bullshit, and I will not reply to him, unquote. A few hours later, a militiaman released another video on social media of a convoy of RSF vehicles firing bullets in the air before stopping at a position they controlled. When he approached uh, one of the vehicles, appeared Hameti in military uniform sitting inside the vehicle with a gun in his left hand. The RSF commander greeted the fighter and asked him to delete the video. However, it is not clear why he posted it, compromising the security of their leader. The Sudanese army has stated that it plans to launch ground operations to clear the capital of the paramilitary forces. And uh, we'll have more detailed information uh, on uh, the current security situation in the Republic of Sudan later on in our program. In other news, Africa is facing a major financing shortage that threatens the region's growth. The International Monetary Fund warned in its report on the region's economic outlook. The organization also warned that public debt is further delaying the region's economic recovery. Policymakers should stay the course of prudent monetary policy tightening. 
Catherine Patillo, the Deputy Director of the Africa Department at the International Monetary Fund, answered questions from Africa News. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the East African state of Kenya, 39 bodies have been found so far on land owned by a pastor in coastal Kenya who was arrested for telling his followers to fast to death. Melinde Sub County Police Chief John Kimboy said that more shallow graves have yet to be dug up on the land belonging to Pastor Mackenzie, uh, who was arrested on April 14th over links to cultism. The total death toll now is 43 because a further four people died after they and others were discovered starting at the Good News International Church last week. Police have asked the court to allow them to hold Mackenzie longer as investigations into the deaths of his followers continue. A tip-off from members of the public led police to raid the pastor's property in Melinde, uh, where they found 15 emaciated people, including the four who later died. The followers said they were starving on the pastor's instructions in order to meet Jesus. And uh, finally, uh, in regard to the situation of the special military operation of the Russian Federation in neighboring Ukraine, the Russian assault team liberated two areas of Artyomovsk over the past day uh, during the special military operation in Ukraine. That's according to Defense Ministry spokesman, Lieutenant General Igor Konashenkov. Uh, they reported this uh, earlier today. In the Donetsk direction, assault teams liberated two areas in the western parts of the city of Artyomovsk. In the past 24 hours, the spokesman said the Russian Airborne Force units rendered support to the assault teams in the northern and southern districts of the city. Now, Russian air defenses, according to reports from the TASS news agency, have downed nine Ukrainian drones over the past day. Now, Russian air defense forces eliminated 15 Ukrainian unmanned aerial vehicles, including in the vicinity of the residential area of Kirilovka, Belayanovka, and the Donetsk People's Republic, Krim Minaya, Ruba Zoyi, and the Luhansk People's Republic of Tavrisk in the Kherson region, the spokesman said. Russian air defense forces have eliminated these uh, drones. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so that you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at 
blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. All over the earth will earth, and all over high will see. They will see. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for this Sunday, uh, April the 23rd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, Abayomi Azigua, and uh, we want to get into uh, some recent developments in the Republic of Sudan, and of course, this deals uh, with the evacuation of diplomatic personnel from several countries that took place today uh, as well as yesterday. Uh, let's listen to this report. Now, the United States has conducted a military operation to evacuate its embassy staff from Sudan. The army had agreed to help evacuate foreign nationals as gunfire, street battles and airstrikes continue in the capital, Khartoum. Earlier, two ships carrying staff from Saudi Arabia's embassy arrived back home in Jeddah through Port Sudan, 
Also on board were diplomatic officials from other countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council. The UK, France and China, meanwhile, are also arranging for their embassy staff and citizens to be evacuated, as are Iraq and Jordan. Shia Brutanzi has more now from Washington, D.C. For several days now, we've been told that contingency planning for an evacuation of U.S. government personnel from Sudan was underway. There were high-level calls between Mark Milley, the Joint Chiefs, and Sudanese officials, Anthony Blinken and Sudanese officials, about an evacuation of some sort. More troops were being put into neighboring countries. And we were told on Friday that a decision would be made by President Biden very soon. What we were also constantly told, though, was it would only be U.S. government officials who would be evacuated, not the some 16,000 Americans thought to be in Sudan. There were several relatively testy defensive exchanges, both at the White House and at the State Department over the last few days. And the Biden administration officials kept saying, look, we've told American citizens since the summer of 2021 that Sudan was getting even more dangerous and that they would be on their, on their own. Actually, that message came just a, few, just a week ago or, or so. Nonetheless, I think what, what we'll see in the coming days is that shadow of the Kabul evacuation, which still hangs over the Biden administration. Even when it came to the diplomatic personnel, we're already seeing questions asked as to why it took so long, specifically because one of the lessons the Biden administration said that they had learnt from Kabul was that an early evacuation was key. We're going to see more questions about that in the coming days, I would imagine. Well, fighting between Sudan's army and the rapid support forces is now into its second week. Several ceasefires have failed, including one during Eid. Our correspondent Hibber Morgan reports from the Sudanese capital. The area around the presidential palace and the army headquarters in Khartoum is the focus of intense fighting. As the army and paramilitary group, the rapid support forces, battle for control of Sudan. Many of the city's 6 million residents are trapped in their homes with power outages, a lack of running water, and dwindling food supplies. They're angry that a 72-hour ceasefire for the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Fitr hasn't held. I want to say to the both sides, we are the civilians, we are the paying the price. We're not supposed to live in, in this situation. We are panicking. We are panicking. We are struggling. This is too much for us. Both sides say they're aware of the impact on the Sudanese people. The commander of the Rapid Support Forces says he's asked the UN for help and has spoken to Secretary General Antonio Guterres about the humanitarian truce, safe passage of residents who want to leave, and the protection of aid workers. Even though both sides agreed to a 72-hour ceasefire, People in parts of Khartoum say the fighting on Saturday was the worst they've seen, and some say they've given up on stocking up on basic goods and are waiting for a chance to leave. It's not easy to get a clear picture of the situation. Both sides accuse each other of bombing residential areas. More explosions were heard on Saturday night. Both sides seem determined to fight on, leaving millions of Sudanese fearing for their lives. Hiba Morgan, Al Jazeera, Khartoum. Well, Musa Ali Ibrahim is a Nigerian medical student studying in Sudan, and he says he's been unable to leave the country since the fighting broke out, and our food is running short. We are stranded in Sudan because we are trapped in this 
I can describe it as a war zone, um, especially because we don't have food to eat, to be honest. There is no water to drink, and we don't. the electricity is cut up like for almost three days right now. The students who are living outside the university, they have to migrate from their private apartment into the student campus where they can, be, they can have access to safe drinking water and food to eat. Because outside, the shops are all closed. Even if you have money, you cannot get access to food because there is no way, there is no security. I was just coming out of our house where we stayed, just coming looking, searching for water to drink. All the clothes, the shops were closed. And then as I was trying to still look for water, then some people like two guys, they stopped me and they took my phone and my money either. As I was coming from the school uh, campus, to the mosque of the university around 5.30, there was a very, very gunfire, like heavy gunfire, like very loud to the extent like some of the students started to run haphazardly without knowing where the direction, which direction are they heading to. So it's like that's why it's very scary. You can't even sleep because it's, it's like it's unexpected at night, in the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon, anytime you can hear this kind of gunshot. Well, as we've been saying, foreign evacuations from Sudan are currently underway. Let's speak to Susan Page. She's a professor at Michigan Law School and also a former U.S. ambassador to South Sudan. She joins us now from Ann Arbor in Michigan. Uh, Susan, we've obviously had confirmation from President Biden just in the last half hour of the U.S. evacuation. I want to start with what we know. This was obviously a complicated mission, and I know the embassy earlier in the day said it was too dangerous to evacuate its civilians, but they have managed to get their diplomats out. As a former ambassador yourself, just how risky was this? Well, from what I understand, uh, it, it was probably quite dangerous, given that we were unsure, from what I understand, again, we were unsure who controlled the airport in Khartoum. And the airport had been actually at the center of a lot of the fighting uh, along with nearby areas. So people were sheltering in their homes because it was actually just too dangerous to get out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that um, no matter how many times uh, evacuations occur, they're always situation by situation. And this was difficult with fighting so near the airport. Of course. I believe during the pandemic, this, the embassy there estimated there was something like 19,000 Americans in the country. That's a huge number in terms of the scale of a potential ongoing evacuation of citizens. So what does this mean for them, especially now that they don't even have any diplomatic support there? Right. Well, generally speaking, um, all embassies, I mean, all countries, first and foremost, want to protect their citizens, their nationals, um, and their embassy property, uh, et cetera. Um, but the citizens who live in a country, when things go bad, they are advised to do the same things that official uh, Americans are advised to do, which is, in this case, with take shelter, um, stay as safe as possible, et cetera. But uh, it's difficult to um, try to evacuate people, and you also don't know how many people there are, where they are located, even though we do keep records, um, but it's only those who decide to register with the embassy. And that's not everyone who's in country. And a lot of people, of course, are dual nationals. They may be uh, partnered with uh, a Sudanese, married to a Sudanese, uh, have family, friends, and may not actually want to leave despite the risk to their safety.
Sure. Susan, you just said something there about priorities. But the priority for many embassies and, and foreign powers is to make sure that their citizens and their diplomatic staff, first and foremost, are safe, which I completely understand. I wonder, though, does the evacuation, now that we're seeing of foreign nationals, potentially change the level of perceived urgency of resolving this conflict now for foreign powers, even if it's potentially a little unacknowledged? Um, so it's always difficult if you actually evacuate everyone from a diplomatic mission, because that means you don't have official eyes on the ground and know what's happening. So uh, that makes it difficult. Um, I can only hope that given the complexity, given how large Sudan is, and the foreign powers that have interests, not all of which are the same, uh, I don't think that people will lose interest or um, stop trying to um, help the parties and especially the Sudanese civilians to resolve the conflict and uh, get some peace back in the country. Uh, Susan, let me then ask you about the mediation effort. Does this change anything? Presumably, if some people are getting out, some can get in. Um, it's not clear that that is actually the case. Um, I, I don't know. I, obviously, I don't work for the U.S. government anymore. Um, as it's only been confirmed by uh, uh, Secretary Blinken in the last 30 minutes, one hour, um, it's unclear exactly how the evacuation took place. Did um, Was the airport completely secured? But it's also the airspace and where planes are allowed to fly over and fly into and fly out of. And oftentimes it's a special mission, in which case it is a very limited time frame. That's what I'm expecting is the case in, right now. Susan Page there, a former U.S. ambassador to South Sudan. Thank you so much for joining us here on Al Jazeera, Susan. Really great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much for having me. Well, meanwhile, doctors in Sudan say that the fighting has created what they call a catastrophic situation and forced many hospitals to close. Across the Nile River from the capital, one hospital in Omdurman is doing what it can. Freddie Akar reports. Yusuf was brought to Omdurman Hospital last week. He wasn't involved in the fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces, but he's one of its many casualties. In Ramadan, I am I arrived here during the month of Ramadan. I can no longer work or move easily. I was hit by a stray bullet. I don't know from which direction it came. Across the room, Suleiman described the severe wounds he suffered from bullets and shrapnel. I was hit twice and fell to the ground. I was hit in my hand and in my left side. I was brought to the hospital. Thank God Almighty because now I'm okay. Dozens of sick and wounded people have come here to the Omdurman Teaching Hospital, but it's struggling to cope. Fighting has prevented staff from reaching the facility. It's now operating at just 20% capacity. There is a huge shortage of medical personnel. Those who are now treating the sick and the wounded are the medical staff who arrived at the hospital last Saturday. There is no longer any way to bring other medical staff from their homes or areas to the hospital here. Of course, the doctors and nurses who have been here since last Saturday are completely exhausted. The Sudanese Doctors Syndicate says about 70% of hospitals close to the fighting have had to shut and that ambulances have come under attack. 
Sudan's health system was already in crisis before the fighting. Medics are warning it now risks collapse, just as people need it the most. Ferdia Akar, Al Jazeera. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report uh, on the evacuation of U.S. Uh, personnel uh, from the Republic of Sudan amid uh, the crisis that has been taking place uh, inside uh, of the country. Here is uh, another report on uh, developments uh, taking place in uh, the Republic of Sudan. This is from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. To Sudan, where uh, the army declared a 48-hour truce in celebration of Eid, this has presented a slim opportunity for countries, including South Africa, to evacuate their citizens. Joining us now from Khartoum is our correspondent, Naba Mudihin. Uh, Naba, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. You know, has there been a ceasefire so far? Talk to us about the very latest on the ground. The ceasefire it seems to be failing again and again uh, with the fighting erupting all over the country and specifically in the capital Khartoum. Right now there is uh, fighting in uh, northern Khartoum, eastern Khartoum and some parts of southern Khartoum and also around the presidential palace and the military headquarters. A lot of victims uh, were killed today and a lot of people got wounded. The situation is not improving and the health situation is deteriorating with certain the six hospitals now are out of service. Cannot, they cannot provide medical uh, support or uh, medical services for those wounded and injured. Uh, also, there is still power, sh uh, power outages and shortages of water and lack of food and medicine with humanitarian aid organizations uh, cannot have uh, humanitarian uh, corridors or safe access to those in need. Uh, the situation remains fragile and fluid and we can't expect what is next because whenever they announce a ceasefire, the two parties are not committed to this, uh, to this ceasefire. And, but the latest is the military general for the first time, military general Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the commander of the army, said they are okay to sit on one table uh, with the warring parties in Sudan, which is a, a real development and give um, uh, it's hopeful that it will work this time and it's a development regarding the escalation between the two parties but on ground the fighting is still happening and the two, uh, the two warring parties are trying to, uh, to control over, uh, over Khartoum Bahri right now and eastern Khartoum and the number of people and death toll is, is rising. Also another issue is the burial of uh, of bodies that was not evacuated in downtown and eastern Khartoum. Today, a lot of uh, eyewitnesses show uh, security forces taking dead bodies uh, from the streets and bury them uh, without uh, even doing DNA tests or telling their families, which is a real uh, human rights uh, problem. And uh, of course, it will complicate the scene. The situation is not improving, uh, but there is news that in the f next few hours, uh, many countries will try to evacuate their citizens, including U.S., uh, China, France, South Africa, and uh, many other countries. Uh, we are hopeful that the situation will stop and evacuation of foreigners uh, will take place, and also it will uh, be a calm, calm time for Sudan, and stability and calmness will, will be restored in the country.
just about to ask you that. So yesterday when we spoke to the Red Cross, of course, uh, that was when the 72-hour truce was announced. Uh, they were saying that it was going to be increasingly difficult to evacuate people, you know, during that space, um, that short space of time. In terms of the citizens themselves, uh, we know that they've also tried to leave Sudan. Talk to us about, of course, there's seven countries that border the country. Talk to us about which countries they are going into, knowing very well, of course, that those countries themselves are faced with uh, difficulties in terms of wars. Actually, right now, the first choice uh, for people is going internally in Sudan itself for logistic reasons. And also, they think this escalation will, ha will stop at any moment because people left their houses, uh, their buildings, their offices uh, when the war just happened out of sudden, and they are hopeful to get back soon. So people right now are fleeing to Al Jazeera state, which is um, in the central uh, Sudan. And that state is big, and it's uh, nearby other states which is the biggest region in Sudan central Sudan and it's relatively calm right now uh, people are also trying to get access to Egypt some people chose to go to Egypt and people uh, right now uh, thousands of families arrived in Egypt and Egypt opened the borders for uh, wounded people and for citizens uh, especially women and children and men are just doing visa procedures and they can uh, intervene uh, Egypt within a few days and we are expecting it on Sunday because now it's Eid vacation other option for people is Eritrea and Ethiopia because Sudan share uh, shares many borders with country but people are choosing Ethiopia also specifically African students who were studying in Sudan and Asian students they fled to Ethiopia uh, but other countries like Libya and Chad and Central Africa is not possible because the roads take people to those places and the uh, countries now is blocked and it's a war zone uh, place. Uh, besides, the three countries are not the safest uh, choice for people right now, specifically Chad that closed its borders, borders with Sudan. All so right. people right now are internally displacing and fleeing. Uh, hopefully that it will end soon because, yeah, because of the Eid vacation. Yeah, of course. Naba, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Really do appreciate it. Naba Mudidim, they're giving us an update uh, coming to us from Khartoum. And she's our correspondent there on the ground. Yeah, and that was another report from inside uh, the Republic of Sudan on the current uh, security uh, crisis inside the country. Uh, foreign nationals, their governments are evacuating people uh, from Khartoum. Uh, but there are thousands of other uh, U.S. citizens, uh, British citizens, among others, who are still uh, inside the country. Uh, this clash uh, began uh, eight days ago uh, due to differences uh, among uh, the rapid support forces uh, headed by Mohammed Hamdine Degalo and uh, the General, uh, the commander of the Sudanese Armed Forces, Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, has uh, reported that hundreds of people have been killed. That's the official uh, tally. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it may rise, and in, in all likelihood, it will rise in the hours, days, and weeks uh, to come until uh, this conflict is resolved. Uh, many uh, countries throughout the world, including the United Nations General Assembly, uh, the United Nations Secretary General 
the African Union have all uh, called for a immediate ceasefire and uh, to allow uh, for the uh, de- deployment of humanitarian assistance uh, to uh, the tens of millions of people who live in the Republic of Sudan, a population estimated to be nearly 47 million people. Here's another report uh, on uh, the developments inside of Sudan. We begin in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, where fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces is in its second week. That is despite both sides committing to a ceasefire over the Eid holiday. These are live pictures of the capital, Khartoum. Many Sudanese are reporting that family members are missing. The UN says more than 400 people have been killed and 3,500 injured. But the toll is believed to be far higher as the confrontations are preventing people from retrieving the victims' bodies left in the streets. We are suffering of lack of food, lack of uh, uh, electricity, lack of water. We do not have electricity for three days now. And also we do not have uh, uh, access to water since uh, Saturday. Uh, But we are drinking from wells here in Khartoum. And the situation is still bad. We are suffering a lot due to the water shortage. All the residents here are suffering from the water issue. We also did not have electricity. We got power back three days ago. We were living in darkness. It's not normal. First we didn't have water, and then we didn't have power. The bus price ticket's nearly $50. Those are incredible prices, and this regular bottle of water costs 500 Sudanese pounds. The conditions here are very bad, very serious. U.S. President Joe Biden says that American embassy staff and their families have been evacuated from Khartoum. Earlier, two ships carrying staff from Saudi Arabia's embassy arrived in Jeddah. Diplomats from other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council were also on board. France, too, has begun an operation to evacuate its citizens. The United Kingdom, China, Iraq and Jordan say they will all do the same. Meanwhile, more than 150 students from the International University of Africa in Khartoum have arrived in Al-Gadaraf, which is in southeast Sudan. A government source says they're being taken to Addis Ababa, and from there they will be taken back to their home countries. Now, one Nigerian student who is still in Khartoum is pleading for help from her government, saying her situation is dire. Since there is no electricity, there is no water. I, I was having some, some little water left with, with me. After managing the water, I cannot, for two days, I can't shower. There is no water to drink. There is no food to drink. You cannot go out to the street to buy food. There is no, you, there is nothing you can buy. And even the cash is not there. These soldiers are roaming about everywhere. And you don't know whether you're going to be the next because the measles are, are you know, they just drop in measles everywhere. Well, footage on social media has shown destruction at a market in northern Khartoum. Buildings were on fire after intense fighting between the army and rapid support forces. Let's go straight to our correspondent, Hibber Morgan, who is in Khartoum for us. So, Hibber, bring us up to date. What is the situation on the fighting this morning? 
Well, it's supposed to be a third day of ceasefire here in the capital, Khartoum, a ceasefire that from the very first day did not hold with fighting uh, between the two sides and civilians caught up in the middle. Now, in the early hours of uh, Sunday morning, we were able to hear heavy artillery uh, strikes in the northern part of the capital, Khartoum. Residents say that uh, several districts uh, have seen uh, or rather heard that artillery strikes as well. And there's also reports of fighting going on between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese army in the western part of Umdurman, that's the twin city of the capital Khartoum. Around the vicinity of the presidential palace and the general command, that's the scene of intense fighting between the two sides. There have been sounds of airstrikes by Sudanese army fighter jets, and we were able to hear the sound of surface-to-air missiles uh, as the ra rapid support forces fired back as at those jets. So it looks like this third day of ceasefire is not holding, despite the fact that there was a lull in violence overnight. Fighting has once again resumed in the capital Khartoum between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese army. I just want to point out to our viewers, Hiba, that we are looking at live pictures of the city of Khartoum. You can see the smoke there billowing in the distance, uh, clearly demonstrating that ongoing fighting is going on. Uh, and clearly that is a huge worry to a lot of overseas countries who have people and staff members who are based in in Khartoum. Uh, we've had more evacuations reported by foreign governments in recent hours. Can you bring us up to date with the latest on those foreign governments evacuating their people? Well, the United States was able to evacuate its diplomats. Those are the embassy staff and their families only. There are still some other U.S. citizens here in the capital who are still caught up in the fighting and others who are staff of the U.N. mission. Now, the U.N. mission is trying to evacuate via the eastern city of Port Sudan. They took off this morning from the capital, Khartoum, in a convoy, and that's about an 11-hour journey from the capital, Khartoum, to the city of Port Sudan on a good day without fighting and without any checkpoints in the middle. But that's not the case right now. So it's likely that, likely that this journey will take them longer. But there's still other nationals who are also still here in the capital, Khartoum, caught up uh, in the fighting. Their embassy says that they're trying to evacuate them and they're un, in the process of coordinating with other allied countries to get, their, to get their citizens out. Now, the rapid support forces and the Sudanese army both exchange accusations of firing at each other uh, as the French embassy tried to evacuate their personnel from the capital. The French embassy is yet to comment on that and we're yet to get a statement from them. But it looks like that evacuation evacuation is going slower than what the French government would want. But there's still other Sudanese as well who are trapped in this conflict, waiting for a lull in fighting for a few hours so that they too can make their way out of this conflict. Okay, for now, good to talk to you. Hiba Morgan giving us that update in Khartoum. Now, I want to get a little more about why this violence has kicked off in the last uh, week and a half in uh, Khartoum and elsewhere in neighboring Khartoum with Hamid Kalafa, Kalafala, who is a researcher and a policy analyst. He joins us now from Khartoum. Um, before we go into the politics, uh, Mr. Kalafala, tell us about your experience. Of course, you live in Khartoum. Uh, what's life been like in the last sort of week and a, a half as fighting has erupted in your city? Yeah, thank you for having me. Life has been uh, almost impossible in, in, in so many ways. I live uh, very close to the market in Khartoum North that you just reported uh, was burned down uh, yesterday. Uh, and obviously that shows you how uh, these items are affecting uh, citizens that they're very close to residential areas, in many cases in the middle of residential areas. Uh, we have been waking up and sleeping to the sounds and noises of uh, 
jet fighters, bombing, shelling, uh, and all sorts of uh, heavy uh, artillery. So it's been quite frightening and, and, and stressful in so many ways. But also there's the other side uh, of, of, of the fighting or, and, or of the war in terms of uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, needs uh, as water, uh, electricity, uh, food supplies, uh, which are all, uh, you know, in, in, in deep shortage, in, in severe shortage as uh, uh, <clears throat> you were just reported. So it has been very difficult, and I think, you know, the longer this war continues, people will study even more in getting uh, food supplies. Uh, we have been without uh, uh, sorry, uh, water for the past uh, nine days uh, in, in our neighborhood. We've had uh, a five days uh, electricity uh, cut, then we had it back for a day, then it went out for two days, then now it's back again. So it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to, you know, get about your daily life uh, in such circumstances. Now, there was this promise of a ceasefire over the Eid holiday, but that hasn't materialized. Today would be day three of that ceasefire if it had indeed happened. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's not come through? Well, both, both uh, generals uh, of the Iraq Support Forces and of the Sudanese Armed Forces were interviewed yesterday by different uh, media uh, channels, and uh, they both accused the other party for not uh, honoring, the, uh, honoring the truth, uh, which I think, in my opinion, only shows that both of them are not really committed uh, towards making uh, any, any you know, progress uh, in this, in this uh, situation. They're both not committed and don't have the will to end this fight yet, because, in my opinion, one of them wants to uh, gain more ground and have, uh, you know, more wins before they can uh, have truce or start talking about negotiations uh, or, or peace talks or, or so on. So each one of them is trying to score a little bit uh, more uh, before they <clears throat> can slow things down and, and start talking about what, what are the next steps are uh, going to be, which could be uh, very dangerous, uh, particularly now that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the international uh, staff and foreign citizens and so on are getting evacuated, okay. which is great. Uh, it, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, well, I want to know what you think is the end game here for those two rival generals. What is it that they want? Well, this is primarily a struggle uh, over power. Uh, so one of them needs to win so that he could claim power. This is how they see it from both uh, ends. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, they have no problem, in my opinion, sacrificing whatever it, 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 it takes, like uh, compromising or jeopardizing the security of the whole uh, country, uh, lives of citizens, citizens uh, infrastructure being uh, destroyed, and so on. They have even their own troops, in my opinion. I don't think they would mind uh, sacrificing them to uh, have win power. Uh, so I think for as they stand now, the ultimate game for them is to see which one would, would, would win power. But that, I think, is not without uh, opportunities and, 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 and openings to stop them from going there. Everything that they do is in coordination and uh, in communication with their regional allies, which the international community could use uh, to leverage, uh, this leverage to uh, stop these generals from continuing this power struggle. 
Okay, really good to get your perspective. Uh, Mr. Hamid Kalafala, a research and policy analyst based there in Khartoum. Stay safe, sir. Thank you. More than 10,000 people have fled the fighting in Sudan and crossed into neighboring Chad. The World Food Programme says that number could rise to 100,000. The refugees are in dire need of essentials, including food, clean water and shelter. Welcome back, and uh, we're continuing our coverage of uh, developments uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, where clashes between rival military structures have resulted in the deaths of hundreds of people, the injuring of thousands of others, and the evacuation of uh, thousands of people uh, from that strategically located and indeed, uh, energy-rich country. And let's listen to another report. We're still talking about Sudan. And the fighting between the army and the paramilitary in Sudan has entered a second week. The army under General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and the rival rapid support forces headed by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo have so far failed to observe ceasefires. And now it seems the RSF is gaining the upper hand in the face-off. The RSF earlier said that it would respect a 72-hour truce on humanitarian grounds, but bombing and shelling was reported in several areas of Khartoum. Residents of capital Khartoum and the adjoining sister cities of Ondurman and Bahri say that fighting had intensified on Saturday morning with airstrikes and gun battles being reported in several areas including near the army headquarters. In a lengthy interview, General Burhan said that Sudan's warring sides need to sit as Sudanese and find the right way to restore hope and life. المقاتلين إلى أماكنهم يجب أن نجلس جميعا كسودانيين ونجد المخرج الملائم حتى نعيد الأمل ونعيد الحياة إلى من ينظرون إلينا الآن برأفة وبحزن وبشفقة While General Burhan appears to be conciliatory on the other hand the head of Sudan's rapid support forces Mohamed Dagalo continues to maintain a hawkish approach he says he will not negotiate with army chief Al-Burhan after a week of strife that killed hundreds in the country. The head of the United Nations World Food Program in Chad say that it expects more refugees to flee across from Sudan. About 10,000 to 20,000 Sudanese have already crossed the border into Chad a week after the fighting began in Khartoum. Alors, c'est très difficile d'estimer. Je crois qu'on a déjà 10 000 à 20 000 personnes qui sont là, qui ont déjà traversé. Ça, c'est certain. On pense qu'il y en a d'autres qui vont venir. C'est quasiment certain aussi. Le nombre, c'est vraiment compliqué. 
le, le programme alimentaire mondial, on va se préparer pour en accueillir au moins 100 000. C'est la première, la première base déjà, mais il se pourrait qu'il y en ait beaucoup plus. Donc il faut vraiment se tenir prêt. With RSF in control of the airport and the runway, it has established that it has a strategic advantage over the army. Their statement that they had coordinated the evacuation of U.S. embassy officials and their families from Darfur only strengthens their standing as the world grapples to protect and even evacuate their citizens stranded in Sudan. We're now being joined by Santosh Kumar Mahapatra, an Indian national who is currently stranded in capital Khartoum in Sudan. Santosh, thank you very much for making time for We On World Is One and welcome to the program. I just want to know, are you safe? Good afternoon. Namaskar. Namaskar. Are you safe? Yes, I am safe, thank God. What is the situation in Khartoum at this moment? Situation is very scary actually. Since uh, the war started between two leaders, SF and uh, RSF, uh, on 15th April, we have been stuck inside the house. There is no electricity in some places, there is no water supply, and we are running out of. Uh, essential commodities, food, food items. Mm -hmm. So this is the current situation is very scary. Continuous uh, air air fighting and uh, uh, firing is going on. We can hear the throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So this is the situation, very scary situation here. Are you alone or are you with family in Khartoum at this moment? I'm I'm staying with my family. Mm -hmm. And what are the, some of the challenges that you and your family are facing at this moment, despite what you have said? You've said there is no electricity, there is no fuel, there is no food, there is no medicine. What other challenges are you facing at the moment? Challenges means like, see, water is the main problem for us. We cannot sleep also because of this sound. We can see, we can hear, hear the sound all night. So um, both the brother militaries, they fight each other, they fire each other. Mm -hmm. Our fighter jets are uh, roaming all over the night. So we are unable to go down. Also, we are uh, stuck inside the house. All right. So this Santosh, is the situation. Santosh, let me know. Uh, also, I want to know from you, are you in touch with the Indian authorities? What are, you, what are they telling you? I am very much uh, in touch with the Indian Embassy. In fact, uh, I am coordinating this area. This is the area called Kafuri. It's five kilometers from the uh, Khartoum International Airport. So, so we are around 250 Indians who are staying in this area. So I am very much in touch with uh, them. And they are uh, trying all the possible way. Right now, the airport is completely out of operation. The runway is also damaged. So the, the possibility of air lifting is very less uh, unless something, you know, happens, some uh, technical, you know, problems solved. So they are uh, trying the option to go up to the nearest uh, port, Port Sudan, by right. road. Right. Now that, from now that you are in communication with the Indian authorities, what are you telling them? 
I am telling you the, the, the situation in the ground in my area. I am talking about my area, about, about the people here, 250 Indians are here. I am talking about they are, they are also in very uh, uh, scary situation, very poor situation. Their uh, stocks are running out, all these problems. Mm -hmm. So, and we are not able to go to them also to uh, reach the, uh, no, the, even it's very difficult to go to one kilometer from here. So the, the paramilitary forces are there everywhere. In front of my house, they are there patrolling here, here and there. So uh, the Indian Embassy very much knows all, each and every uh, situation. They are monitoring each and every situation. They know the uh, places where the fighting is going on, everything they know. All right. I hope that the Indian authorities will get back to you and you will be back in India safely. Stay safe with your family. Santosh Kumar Mahapatra, thank you very much for talking to We On One One today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. We On is now available in your country. Download the app now and get all the news on the move. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from uh, Indian uh, National uh, who was holed up uh, in uh, Khartoum, uh, the capital of the Republic of Sudan. A panel discussion uh, was also held uh, earlier today uh, by uh, various observers and experts and people on the ground inside of the Republic of Sudan. We're going to listen to that report right now. China Global Television Network. Fighting between rival factions in the Sudan military still rages on. It's been a week since the first shot was fired. Neither Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the head of Sudan's transitional governing council, nor Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, his arch-rival and leader of the Rapid Support Forces, is ready to back down. Meanwhile, a large-scale humanitarian crisis is unfolding in the capital Khartoum. Mediation efforts are ongoing, but what happened and why? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Nick Mudimba reviews how events unfolded over the past week as the international calls for a ceasefire were largely ignored amid an unfolding humanitarian crisis in the country. Residents of the Sudanese capital were shocked as gunfire and explosions rent the air last Saturday. As fighting flared up between the military and the rapid support forces, Fighter jets could be seen firing at RSF positions across Khartoum and elsewhere in the country. The rapid support forces replied with anti-aircraft gunfire, shooting down one fighter jet. As soldiers died in the fighting each day, so did civilians. People were forced to stay indoors as civilian deaths mounted, with many casualties having been caught in the crossfire. Food supplies ran low and many hospitals were forced to close the doors. At the heart of the clashes are two men, 
Sudan's military leader, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the commander of the paramilitary rapid support forces RSF, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Until recently, the two were allies. They worked together to topple ousted Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir in 2019 and played a pivotal role in the military coup in 2021. They also joined hands to join pro-democracy protests soon after. However, tensions arose during negotiations to integrate the RSF into the country's military as part of plans to restore civilian rule. This resulted in fierce fighting between the two sides. Seven days down the line, more than 400 people have been killed. More than 3,200 have been injured in the fighting. That's according to World Health Organization officials citing Sudan's Ministry of Health Emergency Operations Center. The United Nations, the African Union, the East African Community and the Intergovernmental Authority and Development, IGAD, have all called for an immediate ceasefire. Many countries have also called for the same, but these calls have been ignored so far and the fighting continues. Many Sudanese are hoping that the clashes will stop soon so that they can resume their normal lives. Nick Mudimba, CGTN. And developments continue unfolding in Sudan. To discuss this now, let's bring in our panel. Joining us here in Nairobi, Dr. Mustafa Yusuf Ali, co-founder and chairman of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. In Cairo, Sarah Kira, international relations expert. And in Juba, Boboya, James Edmund, policy analyst. A warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining us on the program. Dr. Mustafa, if I may start off with you, it's been a week uh, of the latest fighting. What's your reading of the current situation? How do you see this playing out? First of all, there is a, such an, an extreme escalation of fighting between the two forces belonging to General Abdel Fattah and General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. This escalation was unexpected because many thought that the two generals were actually going to uh, um, respect the Islamic holidays of Eid and, 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 and accept the ceasefire or, 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 or just basically cease fire that they had agreed to. Now, what is going on is that uh, in the next coming days is that this escalation is going to get even worse. Uh, we see now the evacuations uh, by Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries, the United States of America, Britain and other Western countries are now starting to plan for evacuation of their staff and nationals that are working in Khartoum. Uh, Baboya, James Edmund, uh, ceasefire attempts don't seem to be holding. Why aren't they working? I think one of the biggest issues is that the warring parties in Sudan, uh, be it the RSF or the Sudan Armed Forces, wanted to have, at least one of them wants to have an upper hand. And you know, always in conflicts in Africa or anywhere, if two forces are actually fighting, one wants to have the winning, uh, with the winning edge in order to, you know, go into a negotiation so that at least one person will be on upper hand. And I think what's going on in Khartoum right now is that. Either uh, General Bohran, or uh, who is the leader of the Sudan Armed Force, or Kudagolo, uh, who is the leader of the RSF, one of them wants to at least have an upper hand. And I think there is this uh, discussion in Khartoum and also international right now that the, SDA, the army wants to take the upper hand. I think they want to secure most of the facilities right. for them to be able to say, oh, now we can be able to talk. So I think that is the issue about.
tilting the balance of power before any discussion can take place in Khartoum. But Boya, so you're watching this from uh, neighboring Juba and you're talking about uh, tilting the, the, the power balance here. But is there any sign that the conflict is showing signs of abating regardless of the ceasefire not holding or is this likely to unfold into a long running civil war? It is not only that. This conflict is going now. It's going to be long lasting. Uh, we have seen the different international uh, communities started with I mean, taking off the diplomatic people out of Khartoum. So basically, the international community know that that uh, that it's going to be a long haul, and therefore it's important for the people to go out of uh, out of that. So uh, right now. What is going on in Khartoum is that the 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 RSF, of course, because they've lost their command, so they're going to be doing that to make sure that everything goes on well, and therefore everything becomes okay. Right, um, Sarah Kira, you're watching this from Cairo, and there are a lot of efforts uh, to try and resolve this current situation. How are you interpreting the unfolding events in Sudan? <clears throat> well, uh, um, the, the events in Sudan are being very fierce and we are not used to Sudan with so much of bloody events and dead bodies on the streets and of course no one wishes the Sudanese people or uh, uh, Sudan as a state and especially as a neighboring state to, uh, uh, to witness all this. Um, if we're talking about what those events lead to and why these events are taking place today. Uh, these events are not leading into any uh, uh, a good place for Sudan or its neighboring countries or Africa as a whole. We're witnessing a country in middle of Africa today that's suffering from being a failed state it's falling into a civil war between military power and paramilitary powers, if we see it from the outside like that, without getting into the details of who are the political actors on right. the ground and why is the fighting taking place. But to start with, this is taking Sudan into a very dark place of uh, mm, a, a humanitarian crisis to start with, uh, being a failed state, uh, 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 that's another negative consequence of what's happening today before we discuss the reasons of the fight. And uh, um, the turning into a civil war between two uh, uh, forces right. um, is no good for such a, it's a geopolitical situation for such a country in the middle of Africa. Yes. So we, we will be looking at the regional impact in just a moment, but I do first want to uh, stay a little bit on uh, what exactly has led to this situation. Dr. Mustafa, you know the two leaders, General Abdel Fatah al-Burhan and General Mohammed Hamdan the Gallo, had previously worked together toppling former President al-Bashir in 2019 and a military coup in 2021. So the question here is, what is the contention all about? How did we get here? Several uh, contentions, Beatrice. One is that uh, the, the, the number of years for the transition process to the civilian rule in which um, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo uh, wants to have a much longer transition time and wants um, uh, the current military uh, uh, leaders, both Burhan and himself, to continue 
having power and own power and taking five, six, up to ten years before the civilian uh, rule can be realized. And, and Burhan's group uh, wishes to have uh, a little bit faster transition into the civilian rule. But here is the, here is the most important uh, point, mm-hmm. is that um, the, the uh, uh, um, uh, Dagalo's uh, group feels that Burhan's group is still the old National Congress Party, which is uh, full of um, Bashir's uh, supporters, politicians, military, financiers, and all that. And therefore, the Islamists within the Burhan group have a much stronger sway uh, on the process itself. And that, when you talk about Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, that automatically brings in Egypt, the mm-hmm. Gulf countries, and other geopolitical interests uh, outside of Sudan. But boy, James, I want to stay on that point for a minute because both the uh, Sudan uh, armed forces, the rapid support forces as well, and civilian political leaders had earlier agreed to a new framework for a civilian transition. So what are the respective interests and the objectives of these protagonists? You, you know, one of the objectives of uh, Bohran basically is that he wants to continue to be in power and therefore he doesn't want to have another power source within Khartoum. At the same time, Dagola wants to be using the RSF to sort of put him in power and basically to begin positioning that, uh, himself to become the leader in, in, in the Sudan. So I think um, they, they want to they have this scenario of winner take it all. And I think one of the biggest issues I just want to say here mm-hmm. uh, is that there are, are enormous interests of the regional communities. For example, if you talk about the case of Libya, Hafta, Kalista Hafta wants to make sure that he works together with Dagalo and try to get a, a better strong, uh, you know, paramilitary that can become, you know, the, the, the force of the day in Khartoum. At the same time, the Egyptians want to also make sure that uh, the, 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 the Sudan Army Force become the most strongest force so that they continue to enjoy services that they are actually receiving right now. So it's about protection of interest uh, for that sake. And at the same time, the role of Russia, you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of... Uh, you know, the, the, the RSF, you know, being used in, in Yemen, uh, also been used uh, in, 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 in the South Sudan, I mean, right. in the Sudan conflict. And also, uh, uh, so, so those dynamics are, are more in terms of political security. But obviously, when you talk about the role of Russians in this process, it's basically about economic interest there. And of course, we've seen uh, over the few uh, months the discussions about right. the, 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 the Russians coming into Sudan and they're taking gold, and this gold are taken to uh, other countries. And basically, so that is important because then they're able to have, have a market for the arms that are coming out from the Russian uh, uh, right. territory. So, so I think I, that is one, one of the issues that's happening as well. So I want to bring in Sarah here because you did uh, bring in. Uh, the, an issue of exactly what this is going to have to, uh, you know, the impact it's going to have on states such as Libya and, and uh, Egypt as well, which has the longest border here uh, with Sudan. What's your thinking on that? Uh, okay, uh, th- this is causing, this is alarming Egypt uh, so very much as we could have seen from the international news in the past few days and of course um, many of the neighboring countries will witness uh, uh, um, uh, terror attacks that would be one of the uh, very negative consequences on the neighboring states and inside Sudan itself uh, 
we have we are being very alarmed as states of the region of terror attacks, um, expanding terror groups that are already existing in Africa and taking hideouts in some countries in Africa after being evacuated from Syria and other neighboring countries like Libya as well. So that's one issue we'll be dealing with. Another one is the refugee, another refugee crisis. And Egypt will be one of the very uh, uh, first affected countries and Chad, of course, um, uh, to, to receive refugees from Sudan. This mm -hmm. is why I'm telling you that the scene is very dark and very bloody now in Sudan and no one wishes that it would go like this. This would be like one of the very, very first and minimum consequence we would mention for as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, leading out or as a consequence of this uh, uh, bloody conflict taking uh, place in Sudan right now. So, Dr. Mustafa, coming back to uh, the timelines uh, of, of that transition to civilian rule, because as part of the transition to democracy, there have been talks about integrating the rapid support forces into the army, but they cannot agree over the timeline. What is the timeline proposed, and what else are the fault lines? Therein lies the problem, integrating the... the, the the rebels or the uh, General Hamdan um, Tagalog group uh, into, into the military, uh, 100,000 personnel into the army is something that is going to take years. It's not going to take um, just a few uh, weeks um, and, and the logistics for that are going to be such that it's going to be costly, they will have to be vetted and they will have to be retrained in order to fit into the military doctrine of Sudan, that is going to take time. And uh, that is where perhaps General Dagalo feels that uh, he is going to be shortchanged. Already he was feeling that he was being thrown under the bus by General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan uh, by calling in the former supporters from the National Congress Party and, 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 and seems to be working closely with, with ideological groups or groups with ideologies that are not really going to be pro-Dagalo's um, group. And that is, that is where the problem is, uh, Beatrice. It is going to take time. They, the, the two will need to be brought together. They will need for them to be mediated. I don't see that problem of uh, integration of the uh, forces from Dagalo's group um, uh, uh, being agreed to by the two generals on their own. There should be some kind of uh, mediation by the Gulf countries, which understand these groups very well, and to some extent China and um, some of the well-meaning countries in the West. All right, and we're going to be looking at that scenario of mediation in just a moment. For now, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the measures taken by the international community in efforts to broker peace. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me on the program, Dr. Mustafa Ali, Sarah Kira, and Boboya James. 
Edmund. Uh, Dr. Mustafa, let me come back to you now on the question of mediation and the efforts underway. Sudan is in a volatile region bordering the Red Sea, the Sahel region and the Horn of Africa. What is at stake for the region? What are the geopolitical dimensions at play? Um, regionally, Sudan now is the epicenter of the Horn of Africa conflict system without a doubt. The, the epicenter is moving away from Mogadishu to, to Sudan. Now, if Sudan, the escalation is not going to be contained in the next days, it means that it's going to take a lot longer, a lot longer to actually contain the disturbances. And there will be a civil war. There will be anarchy in that country. And that means terrorists are going to flood back into Sudan. Uh, there will be many mercenaries that will be fighting or helping either side, Burhan side or Dagalo side, and that is going to be messy for the, for the, for the country. There are many competing interests uh, geopolitically. We see Russia, we see China, we see the United States of America and the Western countries, and more importantly, the Middle Eastern countries, starting with Egypt, which has great stake in the stability of Sudan. All of them actually want a stable Sudan. But the interests, unfortunately, are not converging for, for, for now. So we did see, Dr. Mustafa, though, that uh, the East African region, led by the IGAD uh, uh, member states there, rushing in uh, to try and uh, contain the situation. How exactly, how worried is the East African region here? We have to be very worried. One, as the previous speaker spoke about, the refugees. Um, we've just come out of a debilitating conflict in Ethiopia and we were very lucky that that conflict did not run for a long time. If Sudan is going to be allowed to escalate and, and to get disorganized, then we are going to receive so many refugees um, uh, uh, from Sudan itself. It's going to complicate. The South Sudan is in a mess. The Sahel region is in a mess. Um, Ethiopia is not yet back uh, um, and is not calmed down. Um, the whole region is going to, was already fragile and what has happened and what is happening now in Sudan is that the entire region is becoming much more fragile. IGAD as a lead sub-regional organization mm -hmm. should take much more robust efforts to actually lead the efforts in containing the situation in Sudan. Sarah Kira, you know, there is a sheer number of would-be mediators, including the United States, the European Union, uh, the, the, the U.S., Gulf countries, the Arab League, the African Union, and IGA, that has been mentioned by uh, Dr. Mustafa. Can they do anything, really, to stop the fighting? Well, we all hope uh, there would be really uh, uh, some sort of another peace agreement, but the scene is not very optimistic, if, if, if you want my opinion. In my humble opinion, the scene is not optimistic, and I don't think any efforts will uh, uh, be able to bring all the political actors inside of Sudan first together and then bring the regional actors together because as Dr. Mustafa uh, uh, mentioned uh, uh, that uh, there is a little bit of a geopolitical situation here that we have different interests and the geopolitical importance of Sudan uh, actually attracts different political actors regionally and internationally on international level to Sudan. So the all kind of share interests inside of Sudan. Why? Because as mentioned, it is 
on the Horn of Africa, Sahel region, and the Red Sea. So we have different actors who have interest in the Red Sea. Europe has an interest in the Sahel region, and we all know that. And uh, some other uh, uh, also regional uh, uh, players, we right. would co call them still not being mediators, but players who have interest on the Red Sea. So this complex situation here makes it very, very difficult for any kind of mediation. And it wouldn't be just one party, not only the UN and the US, it wouldn't be only the West or the East or the Middle Eastern countries that take the, the, uh, the role of mediating in Sudan. Yes, there have to be regional actors of great knowledge of Sudan right. geopolitically, historically, because Sudan has a tribal feature as well. Yes, please. So uh, the mediation has to be uh, uh, actually on international level. It has to be a collaborative effort of international as well as regional actors in order to really see some change on the ground and end the situation. But we, we, academics and scholars are not being very optimistic on the scene we're witnessing. Right. I, I do want to put that to Dr. Mustafa. All these efforts, can they really amount to much? They can, Beatrice. Um, two countries that have invested a lot of their financial resources in Sudan, China and the United Arab Emirates have all interest to ensure that there is stability in Sudan. Uh, they're, they're investing in ports and, and, and therefore these two countries um, could as well be stability partners in Sudan. And I see them, if they're given a chance and they come forward, they're going to help. They understand the situation in Sudan very well and the mercantilist approach that China, United Arab Emirates have been uh, uh, following to stabilize in order to trade more mm -hmm. might just work. And I hope that they will work with IGAD and Africa Union to stabilize Sudan. Boboya, I want to bring you in here uh, because of the situation in South Sudan as well. What would a long drawn out civil war mean for Sudan and for the region? Uh, it's going to be uh, very catastrophic because right now uh, you have seen the situation of the airlines. Uh, I mean, the, the, the airlines that are moving from South Sudan to Turkey to uh, Dubai and uh, Egypt Air, they are no longer flying into the South. I mean, to the Sudanese uh, airspace. So the cost, the economic cost, when it comes to airlines now, even it's becoming problematic in, in, in Juba. The other major, major issue of South Sudan and Sudan is also related to the oil, because you know that the pipeline of the South Sudan oil goes through Sudan, goes across Sudan. And if this war continues, that means there's going to be an impact on, on that front, and therefore, economically, the South Sudan is going to greatly suffer in, in terms of that. And I think the other issue is with the, a lot of South Sudanese who are also in the Sudan, are currently actually suffering. It's difficult for them to come home because they ran from a conflict now, they are faced with another conflict in, in the region. So the other issue that I want to talk about, uh, as Dr. Mustafa also said, is that it, it's going to be a bit difficult to talk about mediation effort right now with these two uh, forces because if there's going to be an agreement of moving forward or at least a kind of, you know, a ceasefire, I think the interest of the international uh, communities needs to be, will be used in, in and of course one thing that is more eminent right now is that 
the role of the United Arab, uh, Arab Emirates is important because they are the backers of the, the RSF and also maybe the Egyptians uh, because they are also the backers of, of, of the Sudan Armed Force. And, and you know for sure is that one thing that we never talked about is basically also that Egypt right. had also problems with Ethiopia before when it comes to the dam. So basically if there's going to be a, 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 a right. blown out conflict, they, 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 they will be interested also to see that their interests are also accommodated. So basically right. the international uh, interest, the regional interest, and the local actors' interest is, not, is, is something that someone needs to be also considered. So Dr. Mustafa, I want to get a, a very brief comment from you as we wind up the program. Um, I want us to look forward here and look at what might happen next. In your view, what might happen next? I think given the intransigence of the two generals and... Um, um, I see um, a degeneration, an escalation. Um, the situation will get very bad um, in the coming days. Um, um, and I hope it's going to get better. And it's not going to get better if there is not going to be inter intervention from the international community, starting with IGAD and Africa Union and the friends from the Gulf countries, which we are calling on to speak directly to these two leaders to cease fire and to observe the ceasefire, hold their fire and give dialogue a chance. Uh, Beatrice, it doesn't look very good today, it, tomorrow and the week to come, but we should remain hopeful that the two leaders are going to listen. All right. Uh, thank you all so very much for being a part of this discussion. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in Nairobi, Dr. Mustafa Yusuf Ali, co-founder and chairman of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. In Cairo, Sarah Kira, international relations expert. And in Juba, Boboya, James Edmond, policy analyst. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. You can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more at Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, yet another uh, panel discussion of uh, those uh, who have studied uh, the situation in Sudan and the Horn of Africa, as well as the Arabian Peninsula. And this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April the 23rd, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe, and uh, we've been following intensely uh, the unfolding security crisis in the Republic of Sudan, uh, where the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces have been clashing now for eight days. And uh, if you want to read uh, even further information on the situation in Sudan and its international implications, just go to the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment for uh, this program.
Welcome back. And uh, that was the music of the flirtations uh, with the track entitled Nothing uh, But a Heartache. And you're here listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 23rd, uh, 2023. Our final segment, uh, we're going to present uh, excerpts from a briefing that was held uh, earlier today in the Republic of South Africa uh, by uh, the African National Congress ruling party, its National Executive Committee, which has been discussing uh, numerous issues. In the previous uh, episode, uh, they were briefing uh, on their deliberations uh, surrounding the energy crisis in South Africa, which is popularly referred to as load shedding. Uh, Let's listen to a briefing uh, from uh, this weekend-long National Executive Committee meeting of the African National Congress in the Republic of South Africa. The ANC in Limpopo says it will continue to implement the party's step-aside policy without fear or favor. The move follows a meeting between the provincial party structures and the National Working Committee to give feedback on the state of the province. Four ANC officials were recently ordered to step aside. Well, in fact, let's take you now to the ANC's NEC briefing uh, right in Boxburg. And the subject this afternoon is the subject of uh, coalitions. And uh, I have to my right, Comrade David Makura, the head of political education and a member of the National Executive Committee, also entrusted with steering our work in this uh, area related to coalitions. And uh, Comrade Makura will then take us through Um, the brief remarks related to the discussions that have taken place at the level of the National Executive Committee meeting. Over to you, Comrade David. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Mashenge, and uh, good afternoon to members of the media. I need to say that uh, we will share with you what uh, the National Executive Committee is finalizing. We will not uh, give you the details uh, the exact decisions at the moment, there's uh, still a discussion underway uh, because the National Executive Committee uh, is discussing both the reconfiguration of the alliance issue uh, and the matters uh, pertaining to the coalitions in a local government. Uh, the, the actual decisions will be announced by the Secretary General, but I'll give you a flavor. Uh, of what uh, you are going to uh, uh, be dealing with. Uh, The first thing is basically to say that uh, the National Conference of the ANC, the 55th National Conference, uh, identified uh, one of the issues that uh, the NEC should address uh, in its resolution on uh, strategy and tactics. The conference said that among the key challenges our country faces is uh, that we have uh, unstable uh, and dysfunctional coalition governments that are impacting hugely uh, on uh, service delivery uh, and development in general. Uh, So the National Executive Committee said, uh, given the resolution, uh, the mandate of the the National Conference, we should uh, spearhead the process uh, of uh, bringing a paper uh, and that 
paper is what uh, was presented today to the NEC, uh, and the Secretary General will, will announce the final decisions. Uh, I am going to share with you. Uh, firstly, the National Conference of the ANC was very clear uh, that uh, uh, when we consider the matter of coalitions uh, that are unstable and dysfunctional, uh, in, uh, in our country, uh, we should also draw from international experience. Uh, we should uh, do a, a very detailed assessment of uh, what is happening across the country, uh, where coalitions have been able to undertake some work, what accounts for that. Uh, and <clears throat> The National Conference also makes it, made it clear that uh, the, a discussion on local government coalitions uh, that are unstable, uh, dysfunctional, and very disruptive is not a discussion about uh, coalitions uh, that will come out of 2024 elections. So from the standpoint of the ANC, we are dealing with the current local uh, government coalitions. There are 80 hung councils uh, born out of the 2021 elections. Uh, we have looked in great detail. I will share with you what uh, we are going to do to fix them. That uh, the ANC, with regard to the 2024 elections, the ANC is working uh, very hard, uh, going throughout the country, uh, even in government, addressing the fundamental issues that we know impact uh, on the mood uh, and the attitude of people. Uh, so we are not discussing at this NEC who we are going to be in coalition with in 2024, uh, because we are working for, a, for victory. We are working for a clear victory. Uh, in the 2024 elections, and we have looked at all the data yesterday. Uh, we were looking at election trends, we have looked at, at by-elections, we have looked at uh, uh, what's also happening with the other parties. So we, we are focusing on fixing the coalitions that were given rise to by the 2021 elections, uh, and that's extensively what we are doing. Uh, including looking into where are the, these coalitions, uh, who is uh, in those hung councils, with whom should the ANC work, and why should the ANC work uh, with those parties. Uh, the National Conference of the ANC said when you deal with this issue of fixing coalitions, your starting point must be to that the ANC must win uh, elect every election. So we, we are not resigned to coalitions. We are not, and precisely because even the assessment we have done and the review of the research uh, and uh, uh, extensive experience, we know that there are countries where coalitions uh, have worked and there are countries where coalitions have not worked, and I'll come back to that. Uh, the, the reason you can't bank on coalitions to fix the deep problems, structural problems of a country emerging uh, from uh, many decades of apartheid and colonialism, actually uh, over 300 years of colonialism. You can't fix those through 
You can invest in coalitions. You can put all your energy and efforts in coalitions to fix uh, countries that have major structural problems. Uh, this is born by research. And, 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 and the countries where coalitions have been able to work, there are particular conditions that exist uh, to, to do that. So then our national conference said to us, first, first and foremost, when it comes to elections, work for a decisive, clear victory for the ANC. And we, we are confident, uh, humbling ourselves, working uh, with our people, going into the different areas, even with the local government by elections, that where we are able to fix the problems, uh, uh, people are able to respond, and they have been responding uh, uh, very well. But there are also areas where we want to uh, pay attention to the, to the issues that uh, people are concerned about. So the, the conference also said that you, when you deal with coalitions, you must have one national approach. You can have different approaches uh, and in one province, uh, one province does something, or in a one municipality they do this, and in another they do something else. You need one approach. Yes, the local conditions will be, will be important to take into account. There must be one national policy. What does the ANC want to achieve uh, in, in, in coalition municipalities? Uh, and what, uh, what kind of coalitions do we want to be part of? So that's what the NEC has extensively discussed. And given what conference has said, that if our support is low, completely low, uh, we must be bold enough to go into uh, opposition. This is, an, and I'm reminding you, it is part of our conference. We took that resolution already that the ANC can be in, in coalition governments for its own sake. It can't. It can't just be too desperate to be in coalition governments that are, that are not making a difference uh, for the people uh, and, and, and that when we go into this coalition, it must really be that there's a possibility to improve uh, the, the quality of life and that there's a possibility to build stable government, not just coming in and out. Uh, today you are in and next week you are out and then you must take them out and then they will take you They'll, uh, they'll take you in. And we're not, we're not betting. We, we're now doing a full comprehensive assessment. We also want to go into coalition uh, in these municipalities, hand councils, uh, with parties that are reliable, uh, parties that can commit to very, very specific core values. Uh, and some of those core values are being discussed extensively here. Uh, core values of good governance, core values in, in a stable government, uh, making democracy work for the people, uh, uh, and ensuring that whoever we put in municipalities is to really advance uh, service delivery and, and transformation. So those uh, important issues uh, will form the framework. But we also reviewed, extensively reviewed international literature uh, we reviewed reports, we were able to get some submissions as well uh, as, the, as the, the team that was leading this process uh, of, of preparing for the NEC. We received very extensive uh, submissions and proposals. And as I say, we also reviewed what's happening in the world. And one of the important things is that 
democracies, even major democracies, all democracies, and young democracies are facing crisis, what is called the poly crisis. Uh, the different democracies are facing different type of crisis. Uh, and the cornerstone of that crisis is that uh, citizens in many, in many democracies, citizens get dissatisfied. Uh, they feel the state has disconnected with them. Uh, the democratic state is not meeting their needs. We're able to look at all those issues. And when citizens are not satisfied, what do they resort to? In many areas, they withdraw from electoral participation, very low turnout. Uh, you end up with uh, large numbers. The ANC has that experience. A lot of our supporters uh, st uh, stay away from voting. And that's, uh, that's really the principal driver of the ANC's decline, is that a lot of supporters of the ANC are staying away. And that is why we're investing all the energy. This new National Executive Committee is investing all the energy to reconnect with the base of our core supporters, to address the issues of concern, the image of the ANC, its renewal, but also its performance in government. Wherever we are in government, people need to see we can fix issues. The issues of electricity uh, that were uh, spoken to uh, uh, by by Comrade Sputa uh, and Comrade Mamuloko, uh, and there are other issues we are dealing with at this NEC that, that we've got to. So there are many challenges facing democracies, but a strong, vibrant democracy, a people's uh, democracy, people-centered democracy, participatory democracy is the one that can confront these challenges. It can rebound, it can reconnect with people, but it can also respond to people's needs. Uh, so having looked at all these challenges facing democracy, so one of the challenges facing democracies, including our democracy, is that often people, when they are dissatisfied with existing major parties, they also, so there are new, lot of new parties formed. Uh, there are also parties that get voted for that uh, sometimes are pursuing very narrow ethnic or racial mobilization parties or populist parties. But we are a democracy. We can't complain. So uh, when our democracy is uh, having challenges, uh, we must live up to that. And as we go into the 30th anniversary, we look at this issue of coalitions as one of the challenges of democracy. Coalitions happen because uh, a lot of people don't trust any single party. Voters don't trust any single party to give it a full mandate. Why do voters don't trust any single party to give it a mandate? It is because when they make an assessment, whether you are a, the incumbent or in opposition, they, make, they come to the conclusion that they will not vote uh, uh, for you. So the ANC is spending time fixing that. We know that uh, uh, we know what the other coalition parties are doing. They too are going through a similar crisis. Uh, they, they, are reach, they have reached a ceiling. Most of the opposition parties will not perform above, above a certain level. Why are they looking at coalitions? For them, the savior is coalitions. For the ANC, the savior is to go back to the people. That's why the ANC looks at it this way. So we are not investing in coalitions. We are investing in going back to the people uh, to reconnect with them, to truly respond to their needs. But we also have to fix existing coalitions. 
there was a, there was a tendency uh, uh, <clears throat> generally for people to romanticize coalitions. From 2016, when we had the first big coalitions in the metros, uh, what were the what, what was the commentariat saying? What the commentariat was saying basically that uh, South Africa is now a mature democracy. Coalitions have arrived. They were, they were being celebrated. Uh, people were celebrating coalitions. They represent uh, the majority of our democracy. What is our experience now? In 2023, big disappointment with coalitions. So, and the point we are making is that coalitions are part of democracy, especially multi-party democracy, but they are not an answer. They can't be an answer uh, uh, to all the problems you have to, to, to deal with. And that is why we've got to fix uh, those coalitions that are there. But as a party, we've got to work to reconnect with the people to regain their public confidence and not think that coalitions will solve the problems of economic development in South Africa and they will solve all the problems uh, we are facing. Social, social development, the problem of crime, the problem of... Uh, of the economy and, and, and service delivery. But there are certain things we, we would like to do based on our, our beliefs, our vision for South Africa, there are certain things we would like to do. Having made certain observations, we would like to put in place certain measures. So these measures are being finalized. I'll give you a taste of them, but we, we start with the observations. What have we observed as a major trend uh, amongst the current uh, coalitions. So, in South Africa we've got two ways of governing municipalities. The one is called the executive mayoral system, where you have an executive committee, uh, the mayoral committee that we have the mayor who appoints the mayoral committee, uh, and the other is called the, the executive committee system, or the collective executive committee system. In municipalities where the executive committee system is, we have seen those municipalities being more stable. And what happens in an executive committee system? So when you have had elections, the parties are represented in the executive in proportion to the electoral outcomes, in proportion to the number of votes that they got. So executive uh, committee system is more predictable, is more stable uh, across, across the country. We only uh, have fewer municipalities that are under the mayoral committee system. And it is the municipalities largely under the mayoral committee system where the trouble is. Uh, it is the mayoral committee system is called the winner takes all. So once you have a group of parties in a hung council, they come together, they're 50% plus one, they agree on who will be the mayor. They are going to share, they are to appoint an executive committee and share amongst themselves. Whatever the agreement is, the agreement amongst themselves. Whereas in the executive uh, committee system, it's democratic, it's based on the will of the people. Uh, it's proportional to the electoral outcome. So any party that has been able to receive uh, uh, substantial support is uh, able to get represented. We think that system is more democratic uh, and it is the system that we are considering at the NEC uh, that in all our hung municipalities 
uh, we should introduce the executive committee system. And, and I've explained to you what, what the difference between the mayoral executive, or the executive mayoral system uh, and, the, and the, exec, uh, ex, uh, the executive committee system is. Uh, so that is going to help us address a lot of weaknesses uh, in <clears throat> most of the instability in our municipalities also, also basically stem out of these uh, uh, game plans. The parties changing today, the following parties agree uh, they, and the following uh, uh, week or the following month or the following year uh, a portion of the, the coalition has broken away. It no longer agrees with these ones. It's now working with the other. And then what does that do? Uh, a new coalition comes in. We cannot run uh, a, a, a development and service delivery uh, with that degree of instability. So the ANC is also considering the introduction of legislation uh, to govern. At the moment, coalition government uh, or coalitions are not governed by any legislation. And this will en enable us also to ensure that uh, where there are coalition agreements, they are subjected to some legal uh, authority, they are binding on coalitions, uh, but also they are based on common programs and common uh, an agreed program to a policy, set of policies to fix the problems in an area. Uh, so the NEC is considering this matter very seriously. The NEC is also considering the issue that uh, coalition governments must not disrupt public administration. Uh, we make an observation that in many of these hand councils, decisions that affect administration are never made. Uh, and people employed by government, the, the city managers uh, or municipal managers, uh, and the senior managers who are employed and working full-time uh, are not able to do their work uh, because of these changes, these this disruptions and, this, and the chaos and the in and out. Tomorrow is this party and this mayor. Uh, to, uh, uh, next, next week or next year is another party and another mayor. They were considering to particular set of, 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 of budget or interventions uh, and now, now they have to look at uh, a new budget and, and set of interventions. So legislation to, to insulate public administration from coalition instability is something that the NEC is considering. Uh, and that, that also goes with legislation to make sure that uh, 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 coalitions can be more stable. You can't just have the change. I mean, ev every, ev every shortest time you have a motion of no confidence and every shortest time you have a party that just decides uh, it pulls out of coalitions uh, in, those, uh, in those terms. So that's going to be extremely important. We are also considering the introduction of a threshold. So what is a threshold? So currently we have in 2021, we, have more than, we had more than 600 parties and groups contesting local government. Uh, there is no threshold about uh, uh, what level of electoral support will qualify you to earn a seat in a council or even earn a seat in the executive. So one of the important areas of the research done by a member of our team 
uh, was to look at international experience on, on threshold, threshold work where you have coalitions uh, and you, ha you have threshold, they tend to lift the bar, uh, they tend to raise the level of obligation and parties uh, that have substantial demonstrable uh, electoral support uh, who again, then get represented and they have an obligation basically to the citizens and to the electorate. They can't just behave uh, any other how. The, ANC, uh, the NEC is also considering a very important principle that you, where, the, where there are coalition governments and as we have them now, we must use international experience. And what does that international experience show? The party with the largest vote uh, is, the, is the one that has uh, the initiative to set up a, a coalition government, to invite other parties. But also the party with the largest vote should, be, should get a proportional representation with regard to the executive and any other position. We, we made an observation that the picture in, in our country at the moment is very mixed. So you have small parties, uh, sometimes even individuals, uh, who, who are carrying the weight that is not proportionate to the electoral support that they got. So it's, it's not democratic uh, uh, in our view, uh, and, and we also say that international experience uh, uh, bears us that the party with the largest vote uh, must have the first option uh, to be the one, whether it is in the opposition ranks or in the ranks of the governing party, or the erstwhile governing party uh, and those it works with, the, the electoral outcome must be, must be able to determine who has the initiative and the responsibility to lead the coalition uh, uh, process. At the moment it is just uh, left, uh, left out there. So we want to bring in an important democratic principle that you can't just have a coalition government where the party with the largest votes uh, it's, uh, uh, it's like the smallest party. Uh, and the party with the smallest amount of votes, or even an individual, or group of individuals with, with very limited electoral support, are the ones that are, are, are leading government. That is a fundamental principle we are saying. It's not consistent with democracy. It doesn't matter whether it's the ANC, but even if in another municipality we have the party, the ANC is not the party with the largest vote, we, we have the smallest support. We can't take the initiative to want to lead the opposition. It is undemocratic. Uh, we must be able to allow the party with the largest vote to be the one that puts together a coalition. Uh, but we emphasize that even the issue of uh, uh, this legislative amendment, uh, that the proportional representation, even when you form uh, this coalition, something that must be considered and important. We think it will stabilize uh, coalitions uh, where you have parties that take responsibility, not just individuals, but you have a party that takes, if things don't happen, the citizens must know who is leading that coalition and which party should we really heap in the, the blame on. Uh, yes, there would be others who are participating there, but there must be a single party that bears the greatest responsibility to get a, a, a delivery ha happening in, a, in, a, in our municipalities. 
So in that, in that sense of, uh, of way, what are some of the, the key things? So we, we are considering a minimum program, what's called a citizen's charter. Wherever the ANC will be in coalition, the basis of that coalition must be a citizen charter. What is a citizen's charter? What are we going to do in that municipality? Uh, what are the main problems facing the people in that municipality? And if the ANC is the leader, those who work with us must be agreed that we are, these are the priorities for us as the coalition government uh, to address uh, those. That's what the citizen's charter uh, should mean. But the citizen's charter must also be open. It can't be secret deal-making. We want, in, in, in the coalitions we want to be part of, and this is proceeding from here, it must be transparent, it must be clear. Why are we working with this party? Any agreement we reach cannot be a behind-the-scenes deal-making. It must be something we go to citizens, we can publish that coalition agreement, we can publish uh, also what we have agreed. There can't be secret things that we agree on. But we must also agree that we can't tamper with the administration. We can't agree on removing, putting people in the administration, destabilizing the administration. So that's also an important consideration. Because today you have coalitions that, are, that, that among the things they bargain on are things we regard illegal, basically, interfering in the running of the administration. Uh, people, coalitions discussing tenders, coalitions discussing uh, removing a municipal manager or appointing a, a particular senior officials. All those processes are governed by law. We want to be part of coalitions that observe rule of law, uh, that respect accountability, but also procedures of how officials are appointed. And how officials are removed if they have done wrong things or if they have underperformed. Officials cannot just be removed. Welcome back. And uh, that was excerpts uh, from a briefing uh, held earlier today uh, in the Republic of South Africa uh, based upon uh, the deliberations of the African National Congress National Executive Committee. Uh, they were discussing the issue of coalitions in local governmental structures. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Sunday. Uh, April the 23rd, uh, 2023, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of the legendary uh, William Christopher Handy, uh, the author of the Memphis Blues uh, who considered, who is considered uh, the father of the blues uh, after publishing the Memphis Blues in 1912 as sheet music. We're going to listen to uh, music from uh, W.C. Handy. This is Abayomi Azikwe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.